to episode one of series three of some Essex Labs and a Paralympian. Um, what a way to start uh, the new year with Tani Gray-Thompson on the podcast. Um, Tani, how are you and what's the situation in your life right now? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Um, well, this is the longest I've spent at home since I was about 15. So um, it's kind of, it's, it's okay. I think my family are probably sick to death of me being at home. But um, I'm quite enjoying um, for a little while longer not travelling and, and just sort of getting on with the stuff that I do day to day. Because it must be quite strange at the minute, obviously, being in the House of Lords and you're, of course, a crossbench peer um, where usually you would be in the House of Lords chamber and now you're having to vote electronically. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, the, the change has been amazing. So, you know, this is a building which some of the processes haven't changed for several hundred years. And then suddenly we're all online in debates online, voting online. I never thought we'd do electronic voting. Um, it's, it's been incredible that shift. Um, I have to say um, electronic voting is convenient, but I don't like it. I think there is something really special when you've got to make an effort to be in the chamber and then you've got to make an effort to walk down one of the lobbies one way or the other you're content or not content and you can look at people as they walk you know whichever way they choose I think there's something really powerful about that because also it can take 20 minutes of your day and you kind of think I mean you, I still really think carefully about how I vote you know if it's something I'm not sure on I don't vote but but I think walking through a lobby is something that's really powerful so there's been really brilliant bits um, and then there's been bits which um, are harder as well because there's not so much time pressure that we used to have. You know, previously for us, we'd try and get votes done by about half seven, eight o'clock at night, you know, to you know, just to let people get home. Um, now there's not that kind of pressure because we can vote electronically. So we, we have been voting at quarter to midnight and, and you know, those sorts of times. So it's, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the impact yeah. on sport in the House of Lords then? Am I right in saying you're on the Sport and Recreation Committee? Um, and, you know, it, it is kind of the work that you've had in your career, um, especially kind of outside of kind of competing. Um, does that help you now in terms of understanding certain, you know, legislation being put through in terms of what's happening on, you know, the culture media sports side and kind of working on that as well? Yeah, it has. So while I was competing, I also did lots of other things, which, you know, for me was really important to have kind of balance in my life. So, you know, I sat on the National Disability Council, which was the implementation body of the Disability Discrimination Act. So, you know, I learned a lot from that. I actually did politics as a degree at university. Um, and, you know, I sat on UK Sport and Sport Wales. So I think a lot of people assume that I got into the House of Lords because I've been an athlete and, and that was a bit of it. But the bigger part of it was the other stuff that I did while I was competing. Um, and, you know, uh, that's up. So the Sport Recreation Committee is really interesting. And, you know, we're going to be working together for about a year. You know, part of what we're looking at is whether sport and recreation can be done in a different way or, you know, what we can do to encourage more people to be physically active. It's a really good opportunity to look at everything that's been done in the UK and and say okay what you know is there stuff that we can help do better um and so actually it's an interesting makeup of the committee in terms of you know there's lots of people who know a lot about sport and people who know a lot about education and people who know a lot about young people so it's it's a really interesting committee to to bring all those different you know backgrounds and experiences together to hopefully make some good recommendations 
And I guess in terms of kind of the legacy of London 2012, you know, after what Lord's Co said about inspiring a generation, that kind of continual legacy kind of, we've seen it on the track, of course, with the anniversary games with, you know, London 2017 and the World Championships. But then, of course, you've got the behind the scenes work and what you're doing as well. Do you think it is an aspect kind of of that, and especially for the Paralympic movement, that London 2012 was such a catalyst for us in terms of media coverage and what it did for the sports that it's kind of that it is kind of your responsibility as well as a lot of other people in the Commons and the Lords to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, 2012 was amazing, and I worked on the bids and I worked for the organising committee, and then you know worked in the media at games time. It was fab, it was amazing, but you can't expect the games to change everything for disabled people so yeah it absolutely inspired lots of young people to do sport other olympics and paralympics have done that as well i think 2012 was an amazing moment in time for the uk um but also you know balanced against that is that since 2012 disability hate crime against disabled children's doubled you've had welfare reform bill and you've had austerity and you know um you know when universal credit was going through parliament pretty much everyone agreed it was a good idea it was just how it's sort of unpacked since then that that's caused some some issues so I I, I think the, the games and, and athletes can be inspirational but we need more than that to change lives of disabled people so I think some of the media coverage of you know you're a Paralympian and it's brilliant or you can also be portrayed as a benefit scrounger and not always enough you know there's not enough representation of disabled people in the media, just in TV programmes, in the background, let alone as characters, um, you know, or in books or literature, or if I look at how many disabled people work in, in sport or elite sport, it's not many, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 2012 is great, but there is so much more that needs to be done. You know, we should have, um, you know, lots of disabled people working in elite sport. Um, we're 20% of the population, so, you know, uh, you know, there's also, you know, I could, there's a disability employment gap, you know, that's twice the national average. A lot of companies don't measure disability pay gap because the figures are really bad. So, yeah, we, 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 we have to do more than, than you know, and it's great to look back at the games and we should, but we can't expect the Paralympics to change everything. And I guess looking ahead, you know, Tokyo and kind of beyond that and Paris and LA in 2028, you know, what do you think can be done in terms of the sports? Because everyone kind of looks at Rio as well as the, as the games which would continue from London. And obviously, you know, if anyone's watched the, the documentary on Netflix, the Rising Phoenix documentary, they could have seen the, you know, the politics behind the scenes and, you know, what Rio had in terms of trying to go through, you know, impeachment proceedings and then end up from that to trying to fund the Paralympic Games on top of an Olympic Games. But the attitude, you know, from them was that it was on top, not as well. And mm. do you think in terms of the attitudes kind of of kind of countries moving forward as well, I guess France and the US will be easier, but, you know, looking forward as a, as, as a Paralympic Games, um, do you think there's a bright future as well? There's a really bright future. I think what a lot of people will be surprised at, it was only when London was bidding for the 2012 Games in 2005 that the cities had to bid for the Olympics and Paralympics. Prior to that, they bid for the Olympics and then there was a negotiation afterwards. So um, it, it's, you know, London did a really good bid for, for both games. It was really clear what it wanted to do for, for both. Um, so 
I think it's, you know, you look to Rio and the point where they were bidding for the games, they were in economically and politically a completely and utterly different time. And also that's probably true for London as well. You know, we, we won in 2005 and then you had the 2008 crash and, you know, 2012, you know, a lot of challenging times of a budget, which you would have had anyway, but, you know, there's lots of discussions around that. So I think it's quite hard bidding seven years out for, for any games. But um, I think in the end, Rio, with a lot of support from other people and, you know, Greg Nugent, who was one of the people, you know, he, he devised the Rising Phoenix film and he, you know, had the campaign for fill the seats. And, but in the end, Rio was better than we expected. We had days where there were more people in Olympic Park during the Paralympics than there was for the Olympics. Mm. So there was some really good stuff to take out of, of Rio as well. Um, Although I think for the athletes, if maybe if your first games was London, Rio probably wasn't, wasn't quite the same, you know, from having, I mean, it's the first time an Olympics has been sold out like that. You know, when you've got a full stadium for qualifiers, you've got to go, wow, you know, that's, that's, that's maybe where you normally get 20, 25,000 people. You don't get a packed stadium. So, um, you know, t- Tokyo is exciting. Um, we're not quite sure what the games will look like. Um, the organisers said they will go on. Um, but I, I think Tokyo was going to be that step change for the Paralympics. Um, and it, it'd be interesting what they managed, you know, the, the delays cost them nearly 2 billion. So that's, that's pretty yeah, yeah. But I think, so going forward to, you know, Paris has already said that it intends to make its central Paris underground station step free. You know, that's, that is really exciting. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't actually know that. So that's, that's pretty cool. So, you know, they've learned, so, Again, people put, there's some stuff that people forget, but with London, you know, they did lots of other things in the city um, to, to help the game. So, you know, Green Park as an interchange station was made accessible um, at a cost of 100 million or something. A lot, it was a lot of money. I can't remember the exact figure. Um, and, you know, so, and they did a lot of work on the South Bank in terms of the cobbles and making that better for wheelchair users and things. So. Um, I think what's happened, a lot of people go from each of the, the organising committees, they move around and each city can learn and, and develop. So I think with Paris, there's some really exciting things that, that might come in terms of accessibility. I'm, I'm not so close to what's happening in L.A., but obviously they've they've got a bit longer as well to, to get themselves together. Because I guess that's the thing. It is not just what you do around an Olympic stadium, let alone an Olympic park, but a whole city in terms of infrastructure and spending you know money on improving um you know facilities for disabled people across the city and talking about um quickly before i wanted to talk about sort of how you got into um kind of competing anyway all the way back in the 70s and 80s um uh, i wanted to talk about your involvement in the bid in um 2005 kind of you know singapore the iconic images of trafalgar square and um that was i mean i kind of that was when I kind of first got the the glimpse of what uh, the, the Paralympic and Olympic movement was about, because I kind of remember that quite vaguely. And obviously that was the day before 7-7 as well. Um, mm-hmm. Beijing was kind of my yeah. first, not to make you feel old or anything, but Beijing was my first um, kind of memory of a, <laughs> an Olympic and Paralympic mm-hmm. Games. I don't really remember Athens at all. Um, but yeah. the involvement in the bid for you, how was that, um, you know, working alongside Sebastian Coe and um, did you work alongside Tony Blair as well for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I got involved in the bid in about 2002. And for me, um, 
so going back further in history, um, Birmingham had bid for the games and Manchester had had two failed bids. And the IOC had very clearly said that if the UK bid again, it had to be a London bid. Um, that's what they wanted. And so, you know, I was involved in the Manchester bid, which they were bidding for the 2000 games in 93. And, and actually at the time, although it was disappointed not to win with Manchester, um, we wouldn't be ready in the same way that we were for the 2012 games because lottery funding would have kicked in in the same way and we wouldn't have had that opportunity to look at what was happening in the league sport. Um, and then, you know, one thing that made a real difference, I think, was the, the Manchester Commonwealth Games in terms of, you know, showing the world that we can organise pretty big multi-sport events. You know, that, that was sort of called Bupar. Um, but for me, what was interesting was the, the first person to chair it was a woman called Barbara Kasani, and incredible woman who did so much and then she stepped aside because actually in terms of your bid into the IOC, and I think you do have to be really conscious of the people you're bidding to. And we needed, realistically at the time, it needed to be a gold medal winning Olympian. Uh, it needed to be somebody who understood politics and it probably needed to be at that time, it needed to be a man. And that was kind of Sebco. That was like job spec was written for him. Um, and, um, you know, the, it, it was a privilege to it. And I, I thought maybe early on, some of my job would be to sit there and go, and what about the Paralympics? Um, but I never once had to do that, never once. And I think that's because, you know, Seb got the Paralympics um, and, you know, uh, the chief exec once we won the bid, Paul Dighton, now Lord Dighton, and he got the Paralympics. So my, my job wasn't sitting there going, huh, you know, remember us, remember us. My job was to talk about um, the village and transport and games lanes. And, and obviously with my experience of being at Paralympics, I also competed at four Olympics and demonstration races. So I had that experience to bring as well. So um, it, it was amazing to be part of because we just felt like it was, you know, two events. And, and one of the toughest conversations I've, I've ever had was the night before we were bidding, and I was in Singapore and Tessa Jowell, who's the then sports minister, said to mm. me, Tani, on stage tomorrow, I want to say the 60 days of the games. Oh, wow. And, and it still gets me because you go, wow, that is amazing. That yeah. is amazing. And she said, what do you think? And she said, everyone is telling me I should just talk about the Olympics. And I said, you need to talk about the Olympics. And she was like, what? And I said, my heart is saying, this is amazing. But we've got to win the Olympics, and and so. How was um, that when you heard that? Oh, I mean, I still get emotional about it now, because it was you know that means that the highest levels in government people get it, um, and and there's still a bit more work to do around that now. But um, yeah, it's and and everything we did with with London was, you know, the look and feel was the same. You know, so things like other cities you've been to, you know, maybe they didn't change the flags. You know, so you know, in in London, they changed the flags coming out of the airport, and so it felt like you were. Um, it kind of felt like it mattered. I mean, the other thing, having our own opening ceremony, that's the first time we've had our own different opening ceremony. So that felt incredible as well. Look, you know, there was disability rights in there, and there was Professor Stephen Hawking, and you know, and stuff like that. And that that was really amazing as well. It felt like, I mean, I remember watching it, and it felt like one of those moments that you can mark in history as a moment for 
change. And I know you still talk about, um, you know, there's a long way for um, disabled people, but in terms of the Paralympic movement itself, it felt quite a powerful thing. And I guess, did you have conversations with people in government? Did you talk to Tony Blair about the Paralympics and what it could do for London as well? And if so, how did those conversations go? Yeah, I mean, I had lots of conversations, uh, you know, Prime Minister, um, you know, each of the Prime Ministers that I've spoken to about Paralympic, you know, have been um, very open and, and welcoming, which is is really good. And, um, you know, I, I think certainly with, with Tony Blair, there was the understanding of what bringing the Olympics and Paralympics to London could do for the city and the country and, um, you know, just our external relations and soft politics. Um, politics is not very far from sport anywhere. So, um, you know, it was it, it was interesting to see how government and government relations worked. Um, you know, I wasn't that involved in politics at that point. And it was interesting to see how at these special moments in time, lots and lots of different people could come together. And I think one of those moments, you know, was actually when we were doing the final presentation to the IOC and you're allowed to take a number of people into the presentation room with you. And I was sitting on the stage, I was part of the presentation team. And um, uh, and that was interesting because other cities didn't really have a Paralympian as part of the bid team. Um, and, um, you know, the, the decision by the bid to take 30 young people from the East End of London. I was about to say the kids yeah. went out to Singapore, didn't they, as part of that message, you know, that kind of played um, the motto, didn't it, overall? It was stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning PR. And, and just because I remember the French bit, they have these beautiful videos and of these Parisian staircases. And, and you know, when Sebco stood up and said, why are we doing it? We're doing it for these 30 children. Again, you know, that's that moment where, and I remember coming out of the, the bid and an IOC member said to me, we've got something from the British bid that we never expected. And I was like, what's that? He said, emotion. And it was that like heart on your sleeve, you know, yeah. this is the moment yeah. to show emotion. Um, and then obviously, you know, we had the next day with the bombing, and, which is horrific. And, you know, that, I think that was very conscious in everyone's mind all the way through that, you know, you, we, we, you know, you have to be mindful. Think, I mean, just you probably never expected anything like that to happen the next day. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're really conscious of, of doing the right thing because of that. So just quickly before moving on, what was the reaction when, I mean, it's clear to see on, on the TV, but how did you react kind of behind the scenes to winning the bid? Was it, you know, we can celebrate right now, but now the work has to begin. And now we have to prove to everyone of what we actually said can be manufactured into something which is tangible and memorable for people to remember in the future. I mean, the moment was incredible because we were sitting there for quite a long time before the announcement and I was sitting on the front row next to Seb. And I remember trying to pick up my glass of water to have a drink. My hand was like that. And it was like, and Seb said to me, I'm not even picking up a glass of water. And we're just smiling because, you know, that sort of slightly fake Oscar smile. Yeah. Know? And I remember there were quite a lot of photographers in front of Paris and not many in front of us. And Seb was like, just keep smiling. And I'm, like, I'm smiling, I'm smiling. And then when Shakarov said the winning city is London, it was just, everyone went ballistic, jumping up and down. and you know, uh, incredible. And then I remember looking over towards the Paris team and you get to know quite a lot of people from the team. And, um, and I remember just looking at them and they're crying. 
because it was so close. Paris kind of went into it as the favourites and then, you know, London yeah, yeah. ended up pipping them, really, at the, at the last post. And, and, and the reality would have been if it had been us against Madrid, Madrid might have, you know, would have had a very strong chance of winning because the Paris folks would have gone to Madrid, whereas the Madrid folks came to us, not Paris. You know, there's a bit more technical stuff to it than that. But um, And it's really hard then because you were all jumping around, hugging each other, mm. and then you see the Paris team and... I'm afraid I did um, kind of slightly turn away from from the Paris bid while we're celebrating because it seemed slightly uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And then later that I had to leave later that night, but I did have a chance to speak to a couple of people I knew from the Paris bid and you know hit them really hard. And you know, in our moment of celebration, they because they they were absolutely convinced that, that it was theirs. imagine that you could be in a situation you know sitting next to Sebastian Coe in Singapore trying to get the the bids to to London and achieving that you know growing up in the south of Wales and then achieving what you did in terms of your career now I always knew I wanted to play sport and I always knew that there was you know that I wanted to be sporty but no I think that sort of develops as you grow up and you kind of see the next step and what's possible to get to. And I mean, I still remember the first time I had a proper conversation with Sabco and it was, this shows, it was 1990 at the Commonwealth Games uh, in Auckland. And do you remember CFAX? Vaguely, yeah, vaguely. I was, I was around for that, so I'm not that okay. young. Don't, forget, don't, don't worry about that. So there was a, um, this messaging system called CFAX. Anyway, it had, so one of Seb's great rivals at the time was an athlete whose surname was also Gray. And it had appeared on CFAX that it said Gray's breaks the 800 world record. What it meant was me, not, not the other time. <laughs> and um, Seb came up to me and he went, oh, oh, you know, my, my dad just rang me and said, oh my God, Gray's broken. You were, oh no, it's all right. It's a different Gray. And that was my first conversation. So um, we said, like I said, ever. The most backhanded compliment you're ever going to get in your life, that, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, but um, no, you don't think about it. You, you, you think about the next steps. You don't sort of, and yeah, I aspired to kind of keep Pete for GB when I was little, but you, you know, you, you, you just take each moment as it comes and try to be your best you can to get to the next step. Um, so yeah, there was the ambition was there and you just, uh, it's, you've got to go and train hard and train smart. That's some of the best advice I had for my coaches was, you know, just, and, and don't, don't have any regrets, you know, just, to, you know, yeah. So what's so what's your disability then? If you could explain more about that and how did that affect you um, growing up as well? So I was born with spina bifida, so I'm actually missing some vertebra at the back of my spinal cord, so it's it's exposed. Um, and so my because my internal organs were touching my spinal cord, there was damage to it from when I was born. So my legs never really developed; they were always incredibly weak. Um, and I couldn't walk very well. I couldn't stand for, I, I fell over a lot. My legs would just collapse from underneath me. And then as I grew up, I developed a curvature of the spine. And so it, it's now this kind of S shape, which you can't really see from the front, but you can see from the back. And then what happened was as my spine curved, my own vertebra severed my spinal cord. Um, oh, wow. And very slowly, didn't feel any pain. Um, it, 
there, there is still my spinal cord is very close to my skin at a certain point in my back where if you press this one point in my back you get I get these like really weird shooting like stars like shooting pain into my because you're actually touching my spinal cord just about so um oh, that's yeah well we won't get the pictures yeah. and the graphics for that then so yeah that's quite interesting but um so I I, I started, I, I don't even remember when I started using a wheelchair, if I'm being really honest, it was, I was young. And there's a little picture of me being really young in my chair. And, you know, my dad and mum encouraged me to be active because they basically didn't want to push me around everywhere. You know, my parents, I mean, I didn't see them being tough. They were just really cool. They were just like, no, we're not pushing you. You know, mm. we, don't, we don't carry your sister around. So we're not pushing you around. So. I'm sure there were people who thought my parents were really mean to me, but actually they were really cool because they just, their view was that I should be independent. What, like, why shouldn't I be independent? You know, so um, yeah, and, and sport was part of that. You know, it was part of, um, uh, you know, part of just living my life, you know, from when I got paralyzed, they didn't treat me any differently. I mean, there were lots of other people who did. There were lots of people who, um, you know, told my parents about all the things that I would never achieve in my life because I was a wheelchair user, but my parents just never, never bought into that. What was the worst occasion that you remember of that as a kid in terms of what you couldn't do? Uh, I, I don't remember like what I couldn't do. I remember people coming up and telling me, you know, oh, isn't it sad that she's in a wheelchair? Or uh, I remember my mum being asked why they'd kept me. Um, and then my wow. mum had a conversation yeah. with me afterwards going, just ignore her, she's stupid. Um, so um, probably one of the toughest times is actually when I was pregnant, that I had a number of people who said to me, people like you shouldn't have children. And that what, Welsh people. Oh, sorry. Wow. So um, yeah, there's some stuff like that. Yeah, but I mean, there's loads. I mean, there's loads and loads and loads I could list. Um, and there's some funny ones. I mean, I remember, um, a boyfriend I had at university, um, he must have shown his parents a picture of me, but I, I, I mean, couldn't... This be... was Loughborough, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I couldn't have been sitting in my wheelchair. So um, I went home to meet them. And they kind of rushed to open the front door and go, went, oh, hello. And they, they were really cool, actually, straight away. But, you know, there was... And I remember saying to this boy, after, why didn't you tell your parents? And he went, what? what? why what yeah and you go oh, yeah, that's really cool um but yeah there's loads of examples but it, it depends you know I don't let it define me I mean it affects me and impacts me and you know it drives me forward but I'm very lucky that I deal with those things in quite a positive way I think mostly. I'm about to say in terms of then you know driving you on and taking part in certain things as well you know you've you've had experience in wheelchair basketball as well as well as kind of racing you know you found wheelchair racing you know, 13 14 and then you became junior national um champion and part of the british wheelchair racing squad at 17 it's, it's a young age um to be involved and i guess you know having spoken to ellie simmons and hannah cockcroft and you know they started at such a young age as well is it quite daunting or is it exciting at that age that you know it is the unexpected that you've had a bit of experience in basketball as well which is different to that and you know how how was that for you no it was exciting I mean I think where I was really lucky was that I didn't um I won the junior nationals in my last year as a junior and I think being able to kind of develop almost under the radar was really good 
And, and it's interesting, you look back, I think the view is, you know, there were a lot of girls competing back then and the competition structure was a bit different, but because we had a special school system, there, there were lots and lots of young girls. The dropout rate post 16 was huge. Um, but while people were in school, it wasn't too bad. And um, I think for me, it was, it gave me a chance to figure out whether I liked the sport, whether I wanted to do it what I wanted my commitment to be. So there wasn't loads of pressure on me when I was very young. I look at Ellie, you know, in, in Beijing at 13 and you're like, wow, you know, that she was amazing in terms of, of how she, she dealt with the pressure and the profile and the media coverage and everything that goes with it. So um, I think I was lucky I was a little bit older when it happened to me. Because your first experience of the Paralympics in Seoul in 1988, where you won bronze, in the 400 meters um especially going out to uh, south korea as well and i guess it would be the same for athletes competing in tokyo for their first paralympics coming up um it's quite a trip um it's not like you've got a home games like london um to sort of settle you down almost how was that going out to seoul um long flight <laughs> I, remember, I remember our playing we, we stopped over at Greenland and, and having several attempts at landing because the weather was really bad I remember that and I remember getting off at the other end and um, 250 identical team kit bags that is never that is never fun when you sit and go oh right okay that's that's brilliant um I mean Korea was was incredible um you know I'd sort of grown up in South Wales and I'm suddenly in this country where the culture, the food, the language, you know, everything is so different. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, where you, you go to a country in Europe and, you know, you can either have a bit of a guess at the language or, you know, the, the you know, dictionary is a bit easier to, to, to go through to translate stuff. Um, so it was, and it was an interesting time because a lot of anti-American riots at the time, very, you know, there was still a huge number of American troops based in, in Korea. Um, and yeah, it was, it was amazing and massive crowd support. I mean, the government had got local groups to support the games. So, you know, the stadiums were full of lots of people wanted, lots of people were very excited to be at venues because, you know, some of the tickets to the Olympics had been so quite expensive and they went for the Paralympics. Um, so it was, it was quite a cool games to be at. And then I do remember we had, um, I think I had two days after my last race and we, you know, you, you don't get to do a lot of sightseeing and like anywhere that you go, but I figured I might not be going back to South Korea. So we made sure that we got to go and see some of, um, some of the history. And then we actually, I can't believe I did this. And I, I, we booked a taxi and we went up to the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. I was to about to ask before. that to see if you went up to the DMZ, because obviously mm -hmm. if anyone knows that, you know, the little blue hearts as well, kind of the pictures speak for themselves, but it's that that must have been surreal yeah so some of the guys on the team were like you know because I was like right come on let's go and do something and um I, I think they were probably expecting a slightly different tourist experience but no it was it was amazing because it was like right we this we need to go and see this and actually as you drive towards it you know there's lots of um you know this, uh, memorials to the American soldiers from each of the, you know, many of the American states had paid to have memorials there and the names of the soldiers that had died there. And I, I think because, you know, I was, I was studying politics by this point, um, you know, history and politics are really important to me. Um, so, you know, I spent time reading before I went to, to 
get a bit of an understanding what you know the impact of the Korean War and, and also because we'd seen you know the riots around the Olympics you know on TV um, and so you know I kind of wanted to understand the the place that I was going into so yeah it was it was you know sadly sort of since you know my aspirations at games changed after you know in terms of wanting to be winning you know and so Barcelona in 1992 was kind of the games where that happened, yeah. you know, four golds and silver in the relay you got. That was, that was, was that the games which catapulted you from somebody who was just competing to then somebody who was in the national limelight after that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I'd had quite a lot of coverage in Wales um, because we've got our own national media, but yeah, 92 changed that. And then, you know, that went from, you know, walking down the street, people going, oh, you're Tanny Gray, which is quite cool. I mean, mostly if they're nice to you, it's lovely. Um, but um, yeah, 92 for me was was a big change to, to my life. And, you know, the Olympic team had done well. A lot of journalists came to cover the Paralympics. You know, there was, you know, a lot of TV coverage. Uh, you know, the Paralympics was on grandstand, you know. It was, so it was, um, it, it, it was a transformational moment for, for British athletes. And, and it was interesting, you know, talking to American athletes or other countries where they, they still look to the UK because of our lottery funding, because of our media coverage and look and go, wow, you know, you're really lucky, you know? So it's, it's, it was a good position to be in. And how did that compare to talking about America, Atlanta, um, four years later, because you got one gold and three silver, so I'm right in saying that games. Um, was that a disappointment because you kind of the expectation was so high, or was it just another chance to say, well, I've got some more medals to the tally, let's move on to Sydney, you know, okay, we'll take it as we see it, kind of thing? Um, it was a bit of both. I mean, it was it at the time really disappointing because you know, I've been trying to win four goals, but actually. I'd, I'd broken personal best. It's probably, as a game, is one of the best games I've competed in, in terms of, you know, courts, but they didn't win in the final, you know. So, um, you know, you, you have these moments where I, I couldn't, I literally could not have pushed any quicker. So for me, I was able to balance not winning with the fact that uh, if I'd come away and not broken personal best, I'd have been gutted. Um, but there was nothing more I could do. It's just in three out of four events, someone went quicker. Um, but, you know, Atlanta wasn't a great game. So, you know, it was a separate organising committee. They didn't really get the Paralympics, and which is bizarre because their American with Disabilities legislation is amazing. They'd had scholarships for American athletes at universities for 20 years. Um, you know, so their, their rights were so much far in advance of ours but then no one really got Paralympics. I'm amazed to hear that because you'd think America out of all the countries, pretty in the world, to be honest, they would be the ones who not just could, but should be able to get the Paralympics. And that wasn't the case. No. And I mean, I think it's, it, it was just interesting going in there because I'd competed at the Olympics because we had these demonstration races there. And, you know, and I think for me, I felt it really strongly because um, between the games, I went to a training camp in Tallahassee and then I flew back into Atlanta and it was like they were taking the village apart around us, you know, and, and it felt a letdown. But 
you know, if you if you look back to the LA Games, you know, they were meant to put on a Paralympics, they decided they couldn't. I mean, it, where America is now is fascinating because the US Olympic Committee is now the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Oh, brilliant. So, you know, it's they, they've made some massive strides and I think in terms of Paralympic coverage, um, you know, they're getting there. They, they are getting there. And I think once it's prime time in the USA, then that affects lots of other things on that time zone. that uh, Sydney and Athens of course um how are those two Paralympics um for you very different I can imagine you know Athens kind of being the, the farewell almost and Sydney you know you you match Barcelona in terms of how many golds you, you you'd won overall so that was a great success for you I mean originally they weren't massively keen on having a Paralympics and when they embraced the idea, it was great. So um, one of my friends, Louise Savage, Australian athlete, she was on Neighbours, you know, and we were like, wow, Lou, that is so good. Like, <laughs> so, you know, they, they started embracing the, the Paralympics. That, yeah, Sydney was great. And, and going into Athens, I knew it was my last games. I knew in my heart of hearts that I couldn't do Beijing. Um, and, you know, my daughter was two and a bit and, you know, I was kind of pretty much broken. So uh, I, I competed for a little bit longer just to be absolutely, completely sure. But um, yeah, I, I kind of remember looking at the stadium in Athens and thinking this is the last time I'll, I'll be at Paralympics. And it was okay. You know, I'd... sport, I think I've always been quite pragmatic about it in that massive part of my life, but you can't do it at that level forever. You just can't. So I think I was lucky, you know, I was lucky I had a longer career as I did, you know, because, you know, at the beginning, I was thinking one, maybe two Paralympics, and then, you know, to come away with five, I think is, is, is good. And I, I think at that point as well, I was ready to, to move on to other things because, you know, I knew that we were going to be bidding for a, a 2012 and yeah. other stuff. So other stuff started to replace, um, you know, certainly after Athens, my head wasn't in it. You know, I, I just knew that I, there was other things I wanted to do. And by that stage, you'd already kind of stopped competing at the London Marathon. That was two years earlier, 2002. You know, you had six first place finishes in the marathon. How did that compare to competing at a Paralympics? Because obviously it's a once a year event. <laughs> and with that, it's much longer distance. But when I was talking to Hannah Cockcroft, she said that, you know, when she trains, that she trains for 100 metres and for a longer distance like the marathon as well which she potentially, she said she, she might do in the future as well, because she said, for, you know, for short distances and long distances in wheelchair racing, all you really need is a sprint. And that's, she said, is the kind of the only common denominator around the training. Is that a true reflection? We're much more as a sport like cycling than we are running because we're not a weight bearing sport. You're overcoming um, momentum, not gravity. So to, to get the sprint technique, you have to put miles under your belt. And it's not the same as running miles. I used to love doing marathons. I used to do four or five marathons a year, whole bunch of half marathons, 10Ks, because they made me, you know, good. And, and it's different race experience and they really helped my sprinting. So I loved it. And, you know, the London Marathon is amazing because there'd be a lot of British support on the, the roads, which is always great. 
and you know a, a lot of fun if people are kind of cheering you on um and I enjoyed it and and I would have you know I would have done more Londons if I could have done um but I was struggling you know to uh you know to to, to get the fitness and I was starting to pick up injuries and um I remember you know my decision to pull out of the 2004 marathon um which was just you know like I need to con- I need to absolutely concentrate on Athens and nothing can deviate so previously doing the London marathon and the other road races I did were all part of building towards the major games that year but I kind of knew that that was sort of slightly borrowed time that that actually if I did London I, it would take too much out of me because my age and I, that for for what I was trying to do for, for I'm guessing that was quite an easy decision for you at the time or yeah it was because as much as I loved London it was about you know the major track competition so yeah hard but not you know you you have to make those compromises and and that's the bit about you know goes back to the early stuff train hard train smart you know as you get older you can't you don't recover in the same way you don't bounce back you 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 have to just think a lot more about what you do um, so, you know, ultimately, and you know, what? I love watching London and I'm very lucky that, you know, since I stopped doing it, I get to work on the commentary team and to be fair, I have to be up earlier to be on the commentary team than I did when I was racing. I was about to say, it's an early start nowadays, isn't it? Even compared to, I can imagine. Yeah. And when you come into, well, when you're racing, nobody cares whether your hair's brushed, but when you're commentating, you can't turn up like, you know, with your hair. Yeah. You have done your hair brushing a bit of makeup on. I've just gone through so, a car wash um, on the way to the commentary box. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, but I love it. I mean, it's 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 so much fun to be able, and it's, the pressure as well is very different because if you get someone's personal best for a marathon wrong, if you get the seconds wrong, you'll get a text message or, a, you know, a tweet saying, I think you'll find Dave Weir's personal best is one, you know, and you, I remember there was one race, I got someone's a hundredth of a second wrong and and somebody tweeted me and told me I got it wrong. How many picks you up in that? Amazing. Yeah. I am so sorry. You know, you do try to get it right, but yeah, that was quite funny. Yeah, you. I, I was ask, how was how was kind of your feeling about media coverage in terms of what you've done as well, kind of outside of um, outside of competing, and how's that you know compared to you know being on on the track? You know, you set thirty world records, but it's almost being involved in media, you know, live TV, live radio, where, you know, you can be picked up and stuff like that. Is that almost more nerve wracking or? Um, it's not nerve wracking. I mean, I think the hardest thing is to do an interview at the end of the race where usually I was red and sweaty and covered in snot and trying to string, you know, a sentence together is not always terribly easy because you're either really excited or you're really devastated and not much in between. Um, or, you know, it's, um, so no, it's 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 okay. Um, you know, being in politics is is there are some things which are quite similar. You spend a lot of time either training for this moment on the track, or you spend a lot of time writing speeches for the time in the chamber. Um, but I'm I think I'm very fortunate that I've got a second career that I really enjoy, and you know that I have a chance to to do something that that I care about. And before kind of sort of looking towards the end of of, of the chat. Um, uh sports personality of the year obviously came along as well um mm. and you have now got a lifetime achievement award mm. um which i watched on tv last year which is kind of surreal talking to you now in, in some sense um how was that for you um it is the biggest award you can get from the bbc in terms of that as well 
I'm really emotional. I'm so I, I I had a little bit of notice to know that I was going to because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to string a sentence together on stage. Um, to have my friends and family there was, I mean, the tickets. I'll be honest, the tickets are like gold dust. And then when I had a phone call saying, "Would your husband and daughter, which is your sister, want to come?" and do you want? And you're like, "Why am I suddenly getting all these tickets?" And and then, so I didn't have much notice. Um, I'll be really honest, as a young athlete, you used to sit there and look at the people getting lifetime achievement and go, they're really old. They are so old. <laughs> um, you know, that was probably when I was 17, 18. And then I kind of go, oh, um, no, it was really emotional. I mean, to show all the different bits of my career, um, you know, was, was very, very sweet and incredibly moving. And I'm glad that I got, to, you know, my, I could not have done it without my family. They're incredible. Um, I'm very glad that I got my, I, I was able to have my family there to be able to say thank. And nobody wants a long Oscar speech in terms of everyone that's helped me. And there's loads of people, you know, my first coach Roy Anthony and there was Dave Williams. And and you can't, I mean, the danger is when you, you start thanking people, you forget somebody. Um, but there were so many people that I just wanted to say thank you to because I couldn't have done it. as well that must have been incredibly surreal um thinking about in terms of how many people within the Paralympic movement have become you know dames and have become knighthoods I can think of some Philip Craven but there aren't too many other than that I can think of so again that must have been very surreal for you yeah I mean that was uh I got a big hat to, to wear to Buckingham Palace um yeah, that, that was lovely. Again, my family got to be there with it, uh, you know, share the moment. And um, I, I invited some friends to lunch afterwards, which is possibly the most expensive lunch I've ever bought. But there were kind of a few people that I wanted to say thank you to in that moment for sort of being there. And, um, you know, uh, that that was lovely. My mum my didn't get to see that. She died before that. Um, my dad got to see that and he got to see me going to the House of Lords, which was really nice um so um yeah it, it was that i mean they're always very different but um it it, it was that they're, they're both a huge honor so before finishing off um i just wanted to quickly ask you about the house of lords how did you get involved in that and um kind of was it an easy decision to eventually were you asked to become a lord i guess hereditary so, here or life yeah, I was nominated, but then you have to go through this interview process. And I have to say it's the hardest interview process I've been through because if you don't get in, they don't necessarily tell you. They may just keep looking at you and, you know, keep you on the books for a while. Um, so my interview process was relatively quick, but I remember going to the interview and one of the first questions I was asked was, what's the most interesting debate you've listened to in the House of Lords? You know, <laughs> Because, um, you know, we do stuff that's really technical. We do line by line legislation. I mean, it's interesting if it's your area of interest, you know, like sport. I'm really happy doing line by line legislation. But, yeah. um, you know, because what we do affects, you know, whether you have and and or in a sentence makes a big difference when it's it's passed. So um, the interview process was really scary. And I remember coming out of my interview and just saying, I have no idea. And um, I got an email Tuesday night and just got an email saying, congratulations, you're in. 
I, and I tell you, there was a really surreal moment. My dad was quite ill by this point and um, I, I was waiting to hear and my dad was in hospital and I went in to visit him one day and he said to me, I didn't like those two people who were just in the room. Amazing. And you go, what two Don't, There weren't two people in the room, Dad. There were. There were. Like, Dad, there wasn't. And um, he said, well, he said, I liked him because he was saying that you're, you're definitely in the Lords and it's all fine, so you'll be all right. And the other one was saying, oh, I'm not sure. But the other one insisted that you'd got through. So I was like, oh, okay. And then <laughs> it was about a week later I found out I was in. So who knows what my dad saw? I mean, it's all... Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe, you know... In the, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, who, who knows? Uh, a bit odd. But, um, yeah, it was, I got an email and then you're kind of in. So, and then you get your staff pass and off you go. And you just get stuck in. So I think being a, an athlete is quite helpful because that you have to be, you have to, in sport, you have to create your own destiny. You have to just work hard and, you know, just do your own stuff. You can't sit around and wait for it to happen. And yeah. politics is the same, to be honest. You just have to get on with it. How many athletes are in the House of Lords? overall oh so we've got here we go we've got chris holmes who's a swimmer paralympian we've got uh he came in after me what was quite cool when i i got put in i had all these phone calls from journalists saying you're the first paralympian in the house of lords go no i'm not <laughs> there is um baroness massam the dowager countess of elton wow who went, who wow. Went to the yeah. games she was in 1960 in rome when you go so she's there you've got min campbell uh, you've got Colin Moynihan, um, who was a, a Cox and rowing team. So, and we've got a lot of people who have, you know, been involved in football. I mean, there's, there's quite a few actually. And um, you see, that's why you should never start naming names because you immediately forget. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's, there's, course. there's quite a lot of people who've been involved at high level in sport who now sit in Lords. Because our job is to be, is to bring an area of expertise. We're not there to talk about everything. We're there to talk about certain topics. And, um, you know, every year the Lords does a gap analysis. They see what areas are missing. So that's what they fill. And, um, you know, we're, we're there. To, so, you know, when we talk about sport, I don't know, there's probably a couple of hundred years experience between us of, of sport. So, you know, we don't all agree with each other. We quite often, you know, very nicely disagree with each other. But, you know, we, we're there to bring our experience. And I guess when it comes down to sports legislation, the pressure, is, is it intensified because you know this is kind of your specialist subject a bit like in masterminds where you have kind of i know it's a bit different but where you have your specialist subject and you just hope you get those questions right or um people like you or hate you for what you do in politics and that's hard so the hard or the hard bit is when you've disappointed somebody when someone you know wanted you to get legislation through and it didn't get through and that's difficult because you know what you do in sport affects lives hundreds of thousands of lives good or bad you know so you don't go in trying to sort of make life difficult for people but then people look at what you've done and then you know don't like it so it's it's different you know in sport people mostly like you or if they don't like you you know it's not the end of the world it's it's politics is that the responsibility is is much greater because it's it's like sport is you know ultimately a bit selfish quite a good skill it matters in the moment it matters to the country in terms of being uplifting and things like that Leg legislation is quite different and i'm guessing you passed some pretty big legislation around sports over the past few years um i work on disability rights sport physical activity uh i'm about to get involved in um domestic violence legislation which is pretty 
some of the stuff that we do is really, really hard, like really tough. Yeah. But you know, that that's what if you sign up to it, you sign up to it. I guess it has to be because the issues are there to be to be debated and to be, you know, intensified and to be focused on because they have to be. Yeah, and, and it's our job to bring experience. So in the Lords, we do a lot of detail. It's like, okay, if we do this, this is how it'll affect this person, this person, and this person. And so you've got to listen to people's personal testimonies and experiences and challenges. And I think what I, something I dealt with, which was really hard during welfare reform, but I was contacted by someone who didn't have any money and didn't, didn't have enough food to eat. And, yeah, you know, it's like, and this was sort of before food banks, and I tried to get their address to send, and they wouldn't give me their address. And it was like, I, I just, and then for that, I remember just feeling I've, I've let this person down because, and, you know, and then, you know, someone else said, look, you know, he, he doesn't want you to send him anything. It's like, but, but, you know, and, and stuff like that is, that's still sort of slightly haunts me. And I guess that's when politics is personalised to some one specific person in that sense. It's not, they're not just stats, they are a human being. And that's when it really becomes yeah. in your mind um, in that situation. Um, who nominated you, by the way, for the House of Lords? Oh, it came through a couple of different people. But um, yeah, it's it's sort of a bit of a, a straight, you, you, you can basically get a form on the Cabinet Office website so you can you can fill one in and put yourself into the process, so anyone can do that. And they do, and actually, you know, it's really important. Actually, the Lords is quite um, diverse. It doesn't always necessarily look it if you look at a picture of us, but and, and we need more diversity in terms of disability. It's quite well represented across lots of different disability groups. But um, yeah, you you can just um, okay, nice, nice. Well, um, I'll let you go um, now. Um, Thank you for coming on, Tony. Before you go, actually, I always say this at the end of every um, uh, podcast. Um, if you've got a message for anyone who's aspiring to be, you know, an athlete in the Olympics, the Paralympics, and, uh, you know, wants, you know, has looked at your career, has looked at BBC Sports Personality of the Year last <laughs> year, and you're receiving that award, and they, they were like you growing up and wanting to should try and get that in the future. Um, maybe not that, you know, they're thinking that you're old, like you thought <laughs> people were. Um, yeah. Yeah. What would that message be? Uh, find a sport you love that you really, truly love because there'll be times when you don't like it, you know, but you've got to love it to go out and do the training and to do the things that make you good are the things you don't like doing. So I was very good at pushing downhill quick, but there's not that many races that is just a straight downhill race with a tailwind. So, um, you know, you've, you've, you've got to do stuff you don't like, um, but, but love it. Whatever you do, love it because you need to remember that you love it when times are hard. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also, give us a follow on social media. On Twitter, it's at Essex Lad Para, and Instagram is at Essex Lad Paralympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some Essex lad and a Paralympian. Farewell, and we'll see you soon.